you are now tuned into World War II Stories. I'm your host, Steve Matthews, and I'm here to take you on a journey through the whirlwind of historical events that shaped our world and defined generations. Stay tuned every Tuesday and Thursday as we delve into the riveting, inspiring, and sometimes tragic stories from World War II. We'll meet the brave men and women who stood up to tyranny, we'll explore clandestine operations and daring escapes, and we'll pay tribute to the resilience of the human spirit in times of extreme adversity. Also, be sure to check out our other podcast focusing on World War I, the conflict that set the stage for the global turmoil that followed. Use the link in the description below. As the sun rose on May 12, 1940, the sleepy town of Hannot in Belgium found itself in the crosshairs of history. The rolling fields and tranquil woods, usually home to the humdrum rhythms of farming life, were about to bear witness to one of the largest tank battles of World War II. The Battle of Hannot was not just another skirmish, it was the brutal meeting point of political intrigue, military strategy, and the human spirit. The stage was set by the seething undercurrents of international politics. An increasingly belligerent Nazi Germany was itching to implement its blitzkrieg or lightning war doctrine on a grand scale. Belgium, a small, peace-loving nation was unwillingly thrust into the path of this storm, holding the key to both German ambitions and Allied defenses. And as the war drums beat louder and louder, the citizens of Hannah watched with a growing sense of trepidation. This battle was not only a clash of steel and fire but also of ideas and doctrines. It was an examination of the age-old military debate offense versus defense, movement versus holding ground, technology versus tactics. It was a brutal lesson in the realities of modern warfare, with repercussions echoing far beyond the Belgian countryside. Beyond the strategy and tactics, the Battle of Hannah was as all battles ultimately are, a testament to the indomitable human spirit. From the determination of the French soldiers holding the line against the German onslaught to the resilience of the civilians caught in the crossfire, the battle revealed the extraordinary lengths to which ordinary people could go when pushed to the brink. The Battle of Hannah might be a single episode in the vast epic of World War II but it serves as a mirror reflecting the larger themes of the conflict, the destructive power of totalitarian ambitions, the courage of those who stood against it, and the profound impact of war on both soldiers and civilians. This is the story of Hannot, a small town that stood at the center of a conflict that would change the world forever. Chapter 1. The Prologue As the 1930s drew to a close, a palpable tension hung in the air much like the storm clouds that gather before a tempest. World leaders, their faces lined with worry, shuffled around chess pieces on a global board, aware that the peace following World War I was teetering on the edge of a precipice. At the heart of the gathering storm was the man who had recently taken the reins of Germany, Adolf Hitler. A charismatic speaker with a hypnotic hold over the masses, Hitler was fueled by a vision of German domination and a personal hatred for the Treaty of Versailles, the post-World War I agreement seen by many Germans as a national humiliation. His speeches echoed with grand promises of reclaiming lost territories and restoring German pride, words that roused the spirits of a nation still nursing the wounds of a lost war and a crippling economic depression. 
The world watched anxiously as Hitler started rearming Germany, a direct contravention of the Treaty of Versailles. Britain and France, the custodians of peace, looked on with dread but chose a path of appeasement, hoping against hope that war could be averted. Leaders like Britain's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain were desperate to avoid a repeat of the horrors of the Great War. The memory of trenches filled with young lives wasted was still too raw, too painful. Chamberlain, clutching his peace in our time agreement after meeting Hitler, embodied this desperation. Meanwhile, far from the bustling streets of Berlin or the hallowed halls of London, the people of Belgium held their breath. They were painfully aware that their small, peaceful country sat in the path of any potential conflict between Germany and France. Memories of German occupation during the Great War were still fresh in the minds of the older generation. However, they clung to their neutrality, praying that this would shield them from the darkening storm. Belgium's King Leopold III, a young man carrying the heavy mantle of leadership, found himself in a challenging position. He was responsible for his people's safety but acutely aware of the geopolitical realities. Ever the pragmatist, he decided to strengthen Belgium's defenses, focusing on the Dill Line, a series of fortifications along the River Dill. Yet, he did so with a heavy heart, hoping these preparations would prove unnecessary. Unbeknownst to Leopold and his people, over the border in Germany, a plan was slowly taking shape. A plan known as the Manstein Plan, named after its architect, Erich von Manstein. This plan laid the foundation for the terrifying Blitzkrieg strategy and was to launch the world into a devastating conflict. The small town of Hannot, nestled quietly in Belgium's fertile lands, would soon be thrust into the epicenter of this cataclysmic showdown. The gathering storm was ready to break, forever changing the landscapes and lives it swept over. Across the border, deep within the halls of the German High Command, Lieutenant General Erich von Manstein was busy crafting the future. A meticulous man, Manstein had a mind that thrived on strategy and detail. His vision was revolutionary, a strategy that would bypass the fortified French Maginot Line and strike at the heart of France through Belgium. Thus, the Manstein Plan, a blueprint for the infamous Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War, was born. Manstein's idea was daring and unorthodox. It called for fast, concentrated armored divisions to punch through enemy lines, sowing chaos and confusion. The intention was to bypass the traditional extended line of battle and strike directly at the enemy's strategic heartland. This was not the staid, static warfare of World War I. This was warfare at speed, warfare in three dimensions, a paradigm shift in the art of conflict. Manstein's plan, though innovative, faced resistance within the German high command. Traditionalists balked at the idea of deviating from established military doctrine. One of these skeptics was General Heinz Guderian, an armored warfare expert. Guderian, though an advocate for tank warfare, questioned the feasibility of Manstein's ambitious blitzkrieg. Could their panzer divisions maintain supply lines during such a rapid advance? Would they be left exposed without adequate infantry support? However, Manstein had a critical ally, Adolf Hitler. The German Fuhrer, always one to favor audacious plans, 
was captivated by the idea of a swift, decisive blow that would shock the enemy into submission. Hitler's approval tipped the balance, and the German war machine began to prepare for the fast-paced, armored warfare that Manstein's plan demanded. In the quiet town of Hannot, people went about their daily lives, unaware of the storm brewing in their direction. Its green fields, which stretched as far as the eye could see, would soon become a theater for the largest tank battle the world had yet seen. The placid rhythm of rural life was about to be shattered by the rumble of panzer engines and the boom of cannon fire. Back in Berlin, Manstein and his staff pored over maps and plans late into the night. The future of warfare was being written in these rooms, a future in which speed, shock, and firepower would reign supreme. As the seeds of this new war were sown, the world unknowingly teetered on the brink of a conflict that would redefine how wars were fought and won. In the heart of Europe, Belgium found itself treading a precarious line. Its location was both a blessing and a curse. A land of lush fields, charming towns, and hard-working people, it was a scenic bridge between powerful neighbors. But as whispers of war grew louder, this bridge appeared increasingly like a bullseye. King Leopold III sat at the epicenter of this brewing storm. He was a man in his late thirties, with keen eyes that held a wisdom beyond his years. Leopold was no stranger to crisis. His ascension to the throne was shadowed by his father's sudden death, and now the looming specter of war threatened his realm. As the head of a country committed to neutrality, he faced a dilemma that was as complex as it was daunting. Belgium's neutrality was its shield, a declaration to the world that it wished to remain a bystander in the power struggles of its larger neighbors. But the nation's strategic location made this an increasingly difficult stance to maintain. As Germany flexed its military muscles, and France and Britain eyed these developments with growing concern, Leopold's kingdom found itself on the knife's edge of global politics. The Belgian king had a choice to make continue to rely on the policy of neutrality and risk being unprepared, or strengthen his country's defenses and risk provoking the very conflict they sought to avoid. Each option carried its own dangerous implications. Leopold, pragmatic yet anxious, chose to bolster Belgium's defenses, particularly the fortifications along the River Dill, known as the Dill Line. The Dill Line a string of concrete and steel stretching across the Belgian countryside, stood as a silent testament to the mounting tension. It was an embodiment of Belgium's dilemma, a physical manifestation of its uneasy shift from passive neutrality to reluctant preparedness. As the Belgian soldiers drilled and the fortifications grew, the serene rural life around the Dill Line was disrupted. The Belgian people, from the farmers tilling the fields to the children playing in the streets, could sense the change. Life had acquired an underlying current of urgency, and every eye held an unspoken question when would the storm break? Back in his palace, Leopold grappled with the responsibility of his decisions. His heart ached for peace, but his head steered him towards preparation. Little did he know, his fears were soon to be realized. For within the chambers of the German high command, plans were already set in motion. Plans that would tear through Belgium's heart, starting with a small town by the name of Hannot. Chapter 2 The War Drums Beat 
In the verdant fields of Hanat, a peaceful silence hung over the landscape. The farmers tending to their crops, the children running through the streets, and the local shopkeepers exchanging friendly banter were all blissfully unaware of the approaching menace. Yet, this tranquility would soon be shattered, replaced with the ear-splitting roars of war machines and the terror they brought with them. In his modest office, Hannett's mayor, a stoic man named Henri, wrestled with growing concern. Though the townspeople went about their daily routines, he couldn't shake off an unsettling feeling. The persistent rumors of war, the growing stream of refugees from the east, and the distant sounds of military drills were disconcerting. He was torn between maintaining a semblance of normalcy for his town and preparing for a potential conflict. Far from the quiet streets of Hanat, France's General Maurice Gamelin, a man of reserved demeanor and a noted strategist, observed the unfolding situation with a furrowed brow. He was charged with the defense of France and her allies, an immense responsibility in the face of Germany's increasing aggression. Gamelin's strategy relied heavily on the formidable Maginot Line, a series of fortifications along the Franco-German border. But Belgium, specifically the Dill Line, played a crucial role in his plans. Gamelin knew that should Germany invade Belgium, the French and British troops would need to rush to their allies' defense. He also understood that a significant tank battle was looming, one that would test his theories of armored warfare. His counterparts in Britain shared his concerns, with the fate of their own expeditionary force intertwined with Belgium's survival. As the final hours of peace ticked away, soldiers on both sides of the impending conflict savored their last moments of quiet. German panzer crews checked and rechecked their machines their faces a mask of professionalism hiding an undercurrent of anticipation. Along the Dill Line, French and Belgian soldiers stare at the peaceful landscape, their hearts heavy with the knowledge that this tranquility was ephemeral. The quiet before the storm was deceiving, a veneer of calm that belied the violent maelstrom about to unleash itself. And at the heart of this storm stood the unsuspecting town of Hanat its destiny about to be irrevocably altered by the cataclysm to come. The declaration of war against Germany by Britain and France in September 1939 was followed by an eerie period of inactivity on the Western Front, aptly named the Phony War. The news of the declaration was met with both trepidation and relief war was now inevitable, but there was also hope that the combined might of the Allies would deter Hitler from further aggression. While the nations were technically at war, life carried on much as it had before. Civilians went about their daily lives, albeit under the shadow of potential conflict, and the soldiers on both sides awaited action that seemed increasingly unlikely to come. This was especially true for the French and British troops stationed along the Belgian border in the Maginot Line, where long days and nights were filled with drills, maintenance, and an overwhelming sense of suspense. British Expeditionary Forces Commander, Lord Gort, was a seasoned soldier, having earned the Victoria Cross during World War I. He had been on the front lines and knew the horrors of war firsthand. Yet, even he was caught off guard by the strange inactivity that marked the beginning of what was supposed to be a war. As days turned into weeks and weeks into months, the anxiety among his men began to morph into complacency. But Gort knew better. He spent his days preparing, 
planning, and drilling his troops, all while keeping a vigilant eye on the eastern horizon. Meanwhile, in the French command post, General Gamelin also grappled with the phony war. Despite the apparent standstill, he knew that the threat was far from over. His mind was often occupied by Belgium and its critical Dill line. He knew that if Germany decided to strike through Belgium, his army would have to respond swiftly and decisively. Back in Hanat, the phony war had a strange impact. The war felt both close and distant at the same time. The rumble of distant artillery drills and the sight of Belgian soldiers marching through the town was a stark reminder of the potential danger. However, the absence of any actual conflict lulled the townspeople into a false sense of security. As the winter of 1939 settled in, the phony war, with its strange dichotomy of fear and complacency, continued. Yet, behind the scenes, the wheels of conflict were slowly turning. In the confines of German command centers, the plans for an all-out assault on the west were being refined, and the Belgian town of Hanna was squarely in its path. The lull before the storm was about to end, and the world was on the brink of witnessing a clash of armor unlike any seen before. In the early dawn of May 10, 1940, a deafening roar echoed through the skies over Belgium. The tranquility of the morning was abruptly shattered as wave after wave of German aircraft swooped in, their menacing silhouettes blotting out the early morning sun. The phony war was over. The trigger had been pulled. German forces had launched their long-planned offensive in the west, bypassing the formidable Maginot Line and plunging through the Ardennes Forest into Belgium. Their target was the heart of France, but to get there, they would have to go through the Belgian countryside and towns like Hanat. On the ground, chaos ensued. The sleepy town of Hanat woke up to a nightmare. Air raid sirens wailed, sending townspeople scrambling for cover. Mayor Henri, shaken but determined, rallied his community, guiding terrified residents to the safety of shelters, all the while grappling with the realization that his worst fears had come true. King Leopold III, receiving the grim news at his palace, faced the stark reality of the German invasion. The policy of neutrality had failed to protect Belgium from the horrors of war. The king swiftly ordered a full mobilization, rallying his small nation to defend its sovereignty. At the same time, urgent communiques were dispatched to France and Britain, invoking their mutual defense agreements. The responses were swift. General Gamelin and Lord Gort, their apprehension giving way to a grim sense of duty, set their plans into motion. French and British troops, trained and ready, were ordered to advance into Belgium and meet the German onslaught. Their destination was the Dill Line, with the town of Hanat being of particular strategic importance. Meanwhile, in Germany, the audacious Manstein plan was finally in action. Lieutenant General Erich von Manstein and General Heinz Guderian, the skeptics turned believers, watched as their combined strategy of Blitzkrieg took flight. Their forces, spearheaded by the formidable Panzer divisions, were on the move, thundering towards Hanna with a terrifying momentum. The period of uneasy peace had come to a brutal end. The trigger for the largest tank battle in history had been pulled, 
and the course of the Second World War was about to take a dramatic turn. Unbeknownst to the residents of Hanat, their town was about to become the epicenter of a battle that would reverberate through history. Chapter 3 The Battle Unfolds As dawn broke on May 12, 1940, the idyllic town of Hanat was unrecognizable. The once peaceful streets were now filled with the thunderous roars of tanks and the deafening booms of artillery. The Battle of Hanat had begun, and the first blood had been drawn. At the forefront of the French forces was General René Priou, a hardened veteran known for his tactical acumen. He was tasked with delaying the German advance to buy time for the rest of the Allied forces to prepare a strong defensive line along the Dill. With his Somua S-35 tanks and Hotchkiss H-35 light tanks, he faced the daunting task of standing against the formidable German panzer divisions. The first clash occurred at the small hamlet of Crehan, northeast of Hanat. Here, the French 2nd Armored Division engaged the German 3rd Panzer Brigade in a fierce firefight. The air was filled with the acrid scent of gunpowder, the sounds of exploding shells, and the harsh metallic clanging of tank against tank. On the German side, General Heinz Guderian, the mastermind of Blitzkrieg, observed the battlefield. Guderian was not a man easily perturbed, but the fierce resistance put up by the French forces was unexpected. Yet, he was unfazed. His gaze was fixed on the prize, breaking through the Allied front and advancing towards his ultimate goal. Meanwhile, back in the heart of Hanat, Mayor Henri tried his best to maintain some semblance of order amidst the chaos. Shelters were overcrowded, food and medical supplies were running low and fear was a constant companion to the townsfolk. Henri, though terrified himself, refused to let despair take hold. His town was caught in the crossfire of a war they had no part in, yet he resolved to keep his people safe, no matter the cost. Throughout the day, the battle raged on. The French forces, though outnumbered, fought valiantly. Each German advance was met with fierce resistance. However, as the day wore on, the scale of the battle became more apparent. The first blood had been spilled, but it was clear to all that this was just the beginning of a battle that would shape the course of the Second World War. The fields of Hanat had become a crucible of fire and steel, a testing ground for both men and machines. The true cost of this conflict, both in blood and metal, was yet to be revealed. May 13, 1940 dawned with an ominous silence over Hanat. The brief lull gave both sides a chance to regroup, refuel, and rearm. But as the sun climbed higher into the sky, the silence was broken by the growling engines of panzers and somuas, ready to resume their deadly dance. The stage was set for the clash of titans. The focus of the conflict shifted to the strategic crossroads near ORP. Here, General Priou, leading the French 3rd Light Mechanized Division, stood against the full might of the German 16 Panzer Corps under the command of General Erich Hopner. The engagement that ensued would go down in history as one of the largest armored clashes of the early war. At the heart of this maelstrom was General Priou, a man undaunted by the task at hand. Known for his tenacity and tactical skill, he orchestrated a layered defense around ORP. With a firm resolve, he marshaled his forces, 
intent on halting the German advance. General Hopner, on the other hand, was an ardent believer in the power of rapid, decisive action. His commitment to the doctrine of Blitzkrieg was unwavering. He led his forces with a ruthless efficiency, aiming to crush the French resistance swiftly and clear the path towards the strategic Dill Line. The fields around ORP quickly turned into a fiery inferno as tanks clashed head-on. The German Panzer III's and IVs, though less armored, relied on superior numbers and speed. The French S-35S, with their better armor and firepower, stood their ground defiantly. The air was thick with the smell of burning fuel and steel, punctuated by the relentless cacophony of gunfire and the haunting screams of wounded men. Despite the overwhelming odds, the French forces managed to stall the German advance. Each counterattack was carried out with a fierce determination that surprised the German commanders. Priu's men held the line, displaying courage and skill in the face of the relentless blitzkrieg. As day turned into night, the intensity of the battle remained unabated. Under the pale moonlight, the fields of Hanut transformed into a haunting landscape of twisted metal and charred earth. The clash of titans raged on, echoing through the annals of history as a testament to the indomitable spirit of those who fought and the horrifying intensity of modern armored warfare. As the dawn of May 14, 1940, cast a pallid light over the war-scarred landscape of Hanut, a phrase echoed in the minds of the French forces, hold the line. Every last one of General Priu's men understood the importance of their mission. If they faltered, the Germans would break through and the path to the Dill Line would be open. Their stand was not just for their own lives, or for Hanut, but for the whole of Belgium and, indeed, the Allies' hope of containing the German onslaught. General Priu, his face etched with the fatigue of continuous fighting, rallied his men. His words were not of grand victory but of endurance, bravery, and determination. He had seen the mettle of his men tested and had witnessed acts of courage that made him proud. He knew they were up to the task. Meanwhile, on the German side, the mood was one of frustration and urgency. General Hopner, known for his aggressive style, felt the pressure of time. The longer the French held them back, the more time it gave the Allied forces to fortify their defenses along the Dill Line. Every hour of delay dented the effectiveness of Blitzkrieg, the strategy they so heavily relied on. The day's fighting was some of the fiercest of the battle. The French line, while severely stretched, held firm. Each German thrust was met with steely resistance. The French tanks, though outnumbered, used their superior armor and well-coordinated tactics to great effect. The small hamlets and farms around Hanut became hotly contested battle zones, changing hands multiple times throughout the day. Back in Hanut, Mayor Henri, along with the remaining townsfolk, could only listen to the distant echoes of the battle. Fear and helplessness loomed large, but so did hope. Every additional day they heard the sounds of battle meant another day the French had held the line. As dusk fell, the battle showed no signs of abating. Amid the fiery chaos of clashing steel, the determination of the French forces burned fiercely. They knew the odds were against them. But they also knew what was at stake. The line had to be held. 
the Battle of Hanat was not merely about their survival. It was about holding back the tide of war, about defending their homeland and their comrades. And they would not falter. Chapter 4 The Turning Tide On May 15, 1940, as the smoke cleared over the fields of Hanat, a startling realization dawned upon the German high command. The Blitzkrieg, the devastatingly swift offensive that had swept across Europe, had been stalled. Hanat, a small town in Belgium, had proven to be an unexpected bulwark against the German onslaught. General Hopner, his usual firmness slightly shaken, stood surveying the scarred landscape. His Panzer Corps, renowned for their speed and destructive power, had met a formidable adversary. The French forces, despite being outnumbered, had managed to delay the German advance significantly. At the heart of this resistance was General Priou. Against all odds, his men had not only held the line but inflicted substantial damage on the German tanks. He himself bore the signs of the grueling battle, with fatigue etched into his face, yet his eyes remained resolute. The impact of the stalled Blitzkrieg echoed far beyond the confines of Hanat. In Berlin, the news was met with unease. Hitler, expecting a swift victory, found his plans disrupted. Field Marshal Walther von Brauchitsch, the commander-in-chief of the German army, was under immense pressure to regain the momentum. They were uncomfortably reminded that the mighty Blitzkrieg was not invincible. Back in France, news of the stand at Hanat brought a glimmer of hope. Prime Minister Paul Reynaud saw it as a sign that the German advance could be halted. Though the situation remained grave, the French high command was buoyed by this unexpected resistance. In Hanat itself, the pause in the battle brought a brief respite to the exhausted townsfolk. Mayor Henri, a beacon of resilience throughout the ordeal, now had a sliver of hope to offer his beleaguered town. The sound of battle had moved further away. Their town, their homes, had survived another day. The Battle of Hanat, though far from over, had already made its mark. The fields and town of Hanat were not merely a battleground, they had become a symbol of defiance, of resilience, and of the unexpected hurdles that even the mightiest of war machines could encounter. This was the story of a blitzkrieg stalled, and of the ripples it sent through the ranks of both the French and German armies. The shockwaves of the stalled blitzkrieg reached far beyond the battlefield, causing a crisis in the upper echelons of the German command. Back in Berlin, the high command was thrown into a state of concern. The notion of an invincible blitzkrieg had taken a hit and the heads of the German military found themselves grappling with an unforeseen crisis. Field Marshal Walther von Brauchitsch, a man of stern demeanor and a dedicated strategist, felt the pressure mounting. He had been a fervent advocate for the rapid assault tactics of the Blitzkrieg, and now the reality of Hanat forced him to reassess the strategy. Every passing hour without progress was a blow to the morale of his men and to the German war effort. Hitler, renowned for his impatience and demand for swift victory, was equally frustrated. Hanat was supposed to be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. He summoned von Brauchitsch and General Hopner, expecting them to address the delay swiftly and decisively. Hopner, despite his resolute nature, could not hide his concern as he faced his Fuhrer's mounting wrath.
Meanwhile, in Hanat, General Priu was facing his own challenges. His men were weary from the relentless fighting, their numbers dwindling, and the strain of the German attacks was taking its toll. He was well aware that every additional day of fighting brought them closer to their limit. However, his leadership was unwavering. Rallying his men, he emphasized their role in delaying the German advance, instilling in them a sense of purpose amidst the carnage. The crisis in command on both sides created a tension that hung over the battlefield of Hanat. Each decision, every move, became a matter of grave consequence, with the fate of not just Hanat but potentially the entire war hanging in the balance. As the crisis in command unfolded, the Battle of Hanat entered a pivotal stage, setting the course for a climax that would seal its place in the annals of history. On May 16, 1940, the fields of Hanat bore witness to a display of courage that would forever mark its place in history. It was the day of the last stand, where the French forces, outnumbered and exhausted, made their final push against the German onslaught. General Priu stood amongst his men, their faces etched with fatigue but eyes still alight with determination. The previous days of conflict had taken a heavy toll on their ranks. Yet, amidst the exhaustion and despair, a sense of resolve pervaded the air. They were ready to give their all, to stand their ground one last time against the might of the German Panzer Corps. Across the lines, General Hopner mustered his forces for the final assault. The unanticipated resistance at Hanat had strained their advance, and the pressure from Berlin was mounting. There was a palpable sense of urgency, a need to regain the momentum that was so crucial to the German strategy of Blitzkrieg. As the battle commenced, it was evident that this was a fight to the finish. The French soldiers fought with a desperate tenacity, their actions embodying the words of Priu, We hold here, or we fall. The German forces, on the other hand, driven by their commander's urgency and their own indomitable will, pushed forward relentlessly. In the heart of Hanat, Mayor Henri and the townsfolk waited with bated breath, the sounds of the distant conflict echoing their worst fears and hopes. The last stand was not just a battle, it was the determinant of their future. The day ended in a symphony of chaos and courage. The French, though forced to retreat, managed to delay the Germans further, ensuring that their stand at Hanat was not in vain. The last stand marked not an end, but a defining moment in the history of World War II, a testament to the resilience of the human spirit in the face of overwhelming odds. Chapter 5 Aftermath On May 17, 1940, a tense silence fell over the fields of Hanat. The dust of the battle had finally settled, but the echoes of the conflict still lingered. The German forces had finally pushed through the valiant resistance of the French, but their victory came at a heavy price. General Hopner, standing amidst the remnants of his once formidable Panzer Corps, couldn't help but feel the sting of the costs they had incurred. They had gained ground, yes, but the loss in men and machinery was considerable. It was a victory, but it tasted more like defeat. A Pyrrhic Victory In Berlin, Hitler and Field Marshal Walther von Brauchitsch received the news with a similar mix of relief and apprehension. The resistance at Hanat had slowed the Blitzkrieg, disrupted their plans, 
and shaken their confidence. The victory did little to erase these concerns, as the cost of achieving it revealed the vulnerability of their war machine. Meanwhile, in France, the news of the retreat from Hanna was met with mixed feelings. There was no denying the disappointment of losing ground. However, Prius stand at Hanat had showcased the potential of their armored divisions, even when outnumbered. The delay inflicted on the German advance also provided precious time for the Allied forces to regroup and strengthen their defenses. Priu himself, though worn and bruised, was not defeated. He knew the price they had paid at Hanat was heavy. But the Germans had paid heavily too. The battle was over, but the war was far from it. The Battle of Hanat ended in a Pyrrhic victory for the Germans. It shattered the illusion of an invincible blitzkrieg and demonstrated the French forces' resolve and capability. The echoes of this battle, the costs incurred on both sides, would resonate through the course of the war, forever marking the narrative of World War II. The Battle of Hanat may have ended, but its effects began to ripple throughout the theater of war. These ripples were felt from the command centers in Berlin to the front lines in France, all the way across the English Channel to the shores of Britain. In Germany, the high command was forced to reassess their strategy. The Blitzkrieg, though ultimately successful, had faltered at Hannot, showing that it wasn't infallible. This had a profound impact on the German war plan. Field Marshal von Brauchitsch found himself having to review his strategy taking into account the potential for further resistance that could disrupt the lightning-quick warfare they had banked on. For the French, the Battle of Hanat was a wake-up call. Their armored divisions, when well-led and coordinated, could stall the German war machine. This realization prompted a shift in French military thinking. General Charles de Gaulle, a longtime advocate for armored warfare, saw in Hanut validation of his beliefs and pushed for a more robust, organized armored force. In Britain, news of the battle and the resilience of the French at Hanut brought a glimmer of hope. Prime Minister Winston Churchill, always a fiery speaker, used the battle as a rallying point in his speeches, invoking the courage of the French forces to inspire the British people. Even across the Atlantic in the United States, then neutral but watchful, the Battle of Hanat added to the growing concern about the conflict in Europe. President Franklin D. Roosevelt understood the implications of the battle, that it was just a taste of the greater war to come. The ripples from the Battle of Hanat were profound. It was a turning point that led to shifts in strategies, perceptions, and morale among both the Allies and the Axis powers. Its impacts reverberated through the course of the war, affecting the decisions and outcomes of the larger conflict. In the aftermath of Hanat, leaders on both sides of the conflict found themselves reflecting on the lessons learned from the battle. These lessons would shape the decisions, strategies, and outcomes of World War II. The German high command, including Hitler himself, had to face the reality that the Blitzkrieg was not invincible. While the strategy was designed for speed and shock, it was not infallible against a well-coordinated and determined enemy, even when outnumbered. This lesson prompted a re-evaluation of their strategies and forced them to adapt their tactics for future campaigns. 
In France, the battle validated the efficacy of armored divisions in modern warfare. General de Gaulle took these lessons to heart, advocating for better training, coordination, and equipping of French armored units. The results were a more robust armored force, and though France would fall, the lessons learned at Hanat were carried on to other battlefields. Across the Channel, British military strategists like General Bernard Montgomery took notice of the battle's outcomes. The potency of well-coordinated armored units in delaying enemy advances was not lost on them. This would play a significant role in their strategy in the later stages of the war, especially in the North African campaign and the D-Day invasion. In the United States, the lessons from Hanat would help shape the country's entry into the war. The observations made about armored warfare and coordinated defense would influence their training, their strategies, and the design of their own tanks and armored vehicles. The lessons learned from the Battle of Hanat were profound, influencing the strategies, tactics, and equipment of both the Axis and Allied powers. The battle's legacy is therefore more than just the events of those two days. It is the lasting impacts it had on the entirety of World War II and the evolution of modern warfare. Chapter 6 Legacy Years later, as the smoke of World War II had cleared, the Battle of Hanat stood as a testament to the courage of the men who fought there. Its impact transcended the physical battlefield, leaving lasting impressions on the leaders and soldiers of the time. For Charles de Gaulle, who would later become the leader of Free France and then President of the French Republic, the Battle of Hanat represented the bravery and determination of the French forces. He often spoke of it, using the battle as a symbol of the courage that every Frenchman carried within them. In Britain, Winston Churchill, the indomitable wartime Prime Minister, had used the Battle of Hanat as a rallying point during the war. After the war, he continued to reflect on it in his speeches and writings. For Churchill, the stand made by the French at Hanat was emblematic of the spirit that ultimately led the Allies to victory in World War II. On the other side of the conflict, Eric Hopner, who led the German forces at Hanat, had a different perspective. After the war, his reflections were filled with the respect he held for the tenacity and bravery of the French forces that his men faced in battle. For him, Hanat was a demonstration of the courage inherent in every soldier, friend or foe. Across the Atlantic, American General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the supreme commander of Allied forces in Europe and future President of the United States, admired the courage displayed at Hanat. His reflections on the battle influenced his understanding of the courage required in the face of overwhelming odds, an understanding he would carry with him through D-Day and the push to Berlin. The Battle of Hanat, though just one among many in the larger tapestry of World War II, represented the courage of soldiers and the resilience of the human spirit. Its echoes were heard far beyond the battlefields of Belgium, resonating in the hearts and minds of those who led and fought in the most significant conflict of the 20th century. As time went on, the Battle of Hanat took on a unique place in the collective memory of the nations involved in World War II. A battle of firsts and lasts, of courage and resolve, it seared itself into the annals of history, leaving a lasting impression that rippled through generations. In France, the battle was remembered as a moment of heroic resistance. 
In schools, students learned about the courage of the French forces who, against overwhelming odds, stood their ground. The stories of individual bravery, of tank commanders and infantry who fought until the last, became part of the national narrative. In Germany, the battle was a sobering reminder of the costs of war. While the nation's leaders in the post-war years worked to rebuild and atone for the actions of the Nazi regime, the Battle of Hannah served as a symbol of the perils of unchecked aggression and overconfidence. Across the English Channel, the people of Britain saw the Battle of Hannah as evidence of the early resolve of the Allies. Though ultimately a German victory, the battle was portrayed in British history books as a beacon of resilience, an early sign that the Allied nations would not capitulate easily. In the United States, the Battle of Hannah became an integral part of the narrative of World War II. It served as a case study in military academies, and tales of the battle found their way into the books and films that recounted the story of the Second World War. From the personal reflections of the leaders who were there to the collective memory of the nations they represented, the Battle of Hannah held a unique place in the history of World War II. It was more than just a clash of tanks on a Belgian field, it was a testament to the human spirit, a chapter in the grand narrative of the most significant conflict of the 20th century. The echoes of the Battle of Hannah continued to reverberate long after the final shots were fired. The echoes have shaped the course of military tactics, influenced the formation of post-war Europe, and, perhaps most importantly, played a significant role in our understanding of courage, sacrifice, and resilience. The battle revolutionized the way military tacticians and strategists view armored warfare. The first large-scale tank battle in history, Hannah left an indelible mark on the evolution of armored warfare tactics. From the halls of West Point in the U.S. to the classrooms of St. Cyr in France, the lessons from Hannah continue to inform military education and strategy. The echoes of Hannah also resound in the post-war European landscape. The battle's outcome inevitably influenced the German Blitzkrieg, slowing their advance and giving the Allies crucial time to regroup and plan their defense. This delay might have subtly altered the course of the war potentially affecting the shape and structure of post-war Europe. In the realm of public memory, the battle's echoes are perhaps most potent. The stories of courage, tenacity, and resilience have been woven into the narrative fabric of the nations involved. The Battle of Hannah has become a symbol of the human capacity to stand firm in the face of overwhelming adversity. From a personal perspective, the echoes of Hannah touched the lives of many historical figures. Leaders like de Gaulle, Churchill, and Eisenhower were deeply affected by the battle. Their subsequent decisions, their leadership during the rest of the war, and their post-war policies were, in part, shaped by their reflections on Hannah. And so, the echoes of the Battle of Hannah continue to reverberate, shaping our understanding of history, influencing military strategy and reminding us of the human capacity for bravery and resilience. In this way, a two-day battle in a small corner of Belgium continues to influence the course of human history.